morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. The reading today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. By an act of faith, Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians tried it and drowned. By faith, the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and the walls fell flat. By an act of faith, Rahab, the Jericho harlot, welcomed the spies and escaped the destruction that came on those who refused to trust God. I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. There are so many more. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms, made justice work, took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions, fires, sword thrusts, turned disadvantage to advantage, won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, the resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips and, yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawed in two, murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them, making their way as best they could on the cruel edge of the world. Not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us, that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. This is God's word. Today we're going to finish our series that we're calling Unseen. For four weeks we've been looking at faith. What is it? What is the object of our faith? How does faith work? Is it a force? You know, what is this thing called faith? And we've been looking in Hebrews chapter 11 of the men and women of faith. They're all from the Old Testament. They're the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Now, this chapter was written, this whole book of Hebrews was written, to struggling first century Christians who were hitting the proverbial wall, the wall of persecution, the wall of their families disowning them, and they were struggling with faith. The temple was still there, and everything they knew from a previous life, and now they're following this, this new and living way, and they're struggling severely. And the writer of Hebrews writes this letter, circulated to house churches, to encourage them in their faith. Now, here's the beauty of the Bible. Here's the takeaway. This chapter has encouraged me. You know, personally and in this church, I've been going through some really strong leadership challenges and had to really seek God. And I feel like as we've come through chapter 11, I've gotten stronger. I have more faith, hope, and love and courage to, to go forward. I've been spending countless hours in the cafe after each service. And people are telling me the same story. People are ready to step out in faith. They're listening to God's voice. We have more people ready to step into either part-time ministry, full-time ministry, become high-end volunteers. So I feel like the Holy Spirit has dropped this series in our lap this summer. And what that means is great things are around the corner. I really believe that. I think our church is poised to see some great things that God wants to do. So I am so thankful for this chapter. I hope you're learning. I hope you're growing. So here's what I want to do. I want to make some observations on the verses we just read. And then I have one main takeaway that I think will serve us for a long, long time. So let's go to some final thoughts. Number one, 
as you look at the verses we just read, and really all of Hebrews 11, we all need to remember that what we have been studying, these exploits of faith, were done through deeply flawed human beings. Everybody get that? And the reason I want to bring this out is because there's a tendency for you and me to close this book and say these were the celebrities of faith. And these people had the gift of faith, inside track with God. I've been there. I've done that. I've thought that way. Uh, I have an old pastor who used to call that stinking thinking, okay? we got to get rid of it. These were deeply flawed individuals, and the Bible doesn't skate over the fact. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring out their flaws to shame them, but to strengthen us. Paul said all these things were written for our learning, our growing, upon whom the end of the ages have come. So when we look at these individuals, we need to understand that God uses broken vessels. He uses deeply flawed people. Uh, there's an account that I really go back to time and time again in Matthew's Gospel. It's in chapter 8, where Jesus is in the Galilee, his base of operations, and he loved Capernaum. Probably lived there with Peter for a season of time. And one day a centurion comes to him. A centurion is a Roman soldier who has jurisdiction over about 100 men, a very influential man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I am unworthy that you should come under my roof, but I have a servant who is paralyzed and greatly torments. And he was asking Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come to your house. Now, this always puzzled me. Because whenever I ask something of someone, I've got a whole case, right? I'm going to butter them up a little, tell them how great they are. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for them to say no, and then I've got a whole case I'm going to plead on why they should do it, right? Centurion comes to Jesus and kind of lays this on him, and Jesus says, okay, I'll come to your house. No big deal, I'm coming. Now, listen to what the centurion says. This, this is startling. He said, um, Lord, I am unworthy you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, what the centurion had said, he marveled. And said to him, surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, not even among those people who know the scriptures and the exploits of faith. And I say to you, many will come from the east and the west, you and me, Sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. You have believed, and so let it be done unto you. Now this is amazing. And early in the series I asked the question, can only God's people, people that know God, exercise faith? And the answer to that is people exercise faith every day. You know, I gave that illustration, all the chairs you're sitting in, you sat in by faith. There's a lot that we do by faith. But here's a centurion, an idol worshiper, a Roman, a pagan, who Jesus said, this is the greatest faith I have seen in all of Israel. Does that mean faith is a force? Do we wield it like a power? Did the centurion tap into the laws of the universe? No, a thousand times. Here's what the centurion understood in his limited understanding of who God was and who Jesus was. He understood because he had been in Capernaum and he had watched many healings that Jesus was the Lord of a realm. That whatever realm he was Lord of, uh, 
that he had the authority over it. He had the authority over sickness and disease. This unseen world that we still don't understand today, the centurion knew that Jesus presided over it and had supreme authority. He also used his natural understanding. Sometimes Christians bypass common sense. It's a big mistake. The centurion understood. He said, I control 100 men. They have been trained regular, rigorously to obey commands and not to think on their own. If I tell one go, he goes. If I tell another come, he comes. He understood that if there was a realm or a kingdom, that it would pretty much operate that way. And here's his faith. Lord, I'm unworthy. You don't need to come to my house. You're the Lord of this realm. Just say a word. My servant will be healed. He understood what a lot of us don't understand. That spirituality is not about place. It's about See, for the natural-minded man, and sometimes Christians, we think place. We think we've got to be in this building. We've got to make a pilgrimage. We, we've got to be at a prayer rally. We have to be at a holy place, the Ganges River or Medjugorje or some place. And what you begin to understand is it's all about time because time is eternal. And God is eternal. Just say the word. If you have that authority, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. His faith wasn't in faith. His faith wasn't a force. His faith was in Jesus. You have to hear this. In Jesus' willingness to heal. And that's the take home. Do you believe God is willing to do what he says? That's big. That's what we're stepping out into. That's all it really is. And he came to this cognizant idea that God was willing Hebrews 11, 6 says, he who believes in God must come to him and then believe he's a rewarder of them who diligently, day by day, seek him. The other thing we understand from this man is that Jesus' willingness to heal wasn't based on his moral standing. He was a sinner. He was greatly flawed. The Hebrews 11 people were deeply flawed. Noah gets drunk. Abraham lies and has sex with his concubine. Moses strikes the rock in anger. Joshua falls down at Ai. And of all people, Samson is named in verse 32. Sensual Samson, who becomes a grinder in the mill, is lauded for his faith in his final days where he kills more Philistines than any time in his life. And the point is very simple. It's not who we are. It's who God is. Now, some people say, Pastor Bob, you can't talk like that. Because what people are going to do is go out and live any way they want and expect God to do great things. I don't think there's a true Christian on the earth that wants to live that way. I really don't. And if you think that way, I would doubt that you were a Christian, that you want to go out and live your own way. These people were deeply flawed, but they were deeply driven with a desire to know God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we have a great high priest who understands our weaknesses. So here's the simple deal. We're all going to fall off the wagon. We're all going to be deeply flawed and do things we don't want to do at times. It doesn't mean you cower in shame and run away from God. It means you confess and repent and he's faithful to forgive you and he puts you back on solid ground. And there we go again. That's grace, guys. That's the grace that saves you. That's the grace that keeps you. That's the grace that motivates us. We burn a lot of grace in the kingdom. And so that's my first observation. My second observation is when I look at the exploits of these folks, 
it didn't come from a, a, a place of strength, but most of their faith came from a place of deep humility. We looked at Moses last time. Um, in many ways, you and I are like wild horses, right? We get saved, and many of us, like Moses, think we're going to take all our natural building, we're going to bring it into the kingdom of God, and boy, isn't God lucky we've arrived. And we're like wild horses. And if you have walked with God for any amount of time, he's going to break you, and he's going to break you for your goodness. I share with you, I've been walking through some major leadership challenges this year. And uh, every time I have a leadership challenge, I just fall back on the best things I know to do. And one of them is to read. And uh, I picked up a book by Dan Allender, who I saw years ago at a conference. And he's written a book called Leading with a Limp. And in this book, he talks about how really the, the tipping point of our courage to go on comes from brokenness. Uh, listen to this from Dan Allender. He said, no one is humble by nature. In fact, a person who appears naturally humble is usually too lazy to be ambitious or too fearful to take risks. If a person is not tempted to control, especially in a crisis, this is often a symptom of despair and fatalism. Humility comes from humiliation. Isn't that a great point? Not from the choice to be self-effacing or a strong urge to give others the credit. Humility that that has not come from suffering due to one's own arrogance is either a pragmatic strategy to get along with others or a natural predilection that seems to benefit of only a few rare individuals. For most leaders, humility comes only by wounds. Wounds suffered from foolish falls. Peter walking out on the water and almost drowning. This is the terrible secret about leadership and life. See, came to church, you're going to learn the secret. We achieve brokenness, gosh, I love this, by falling off our throne. By falling off our throne. To be broken is not a choice, it's a gift. I don't know anyone who has made the decision to be broken and achieved it as an act of the will. But to experience brokenness and humiliation, all you have to do is lead. We who lead know that things happen that make little sense and seem to have no immediate solution yet involves some failure on our part. I look at this list. Abraham failed. He failed in Egypt. He lied about Sarah. He had sex with, his, sex with his concubine, and yet he's the father of all who believe. What if Abraham would have thrown in the white towel? What if he would have given up? David's mentioned here. He lied, committed adultery, murder, slaughtered human beings. But what about Israel? I can't even believe Israel's mentioned here. They passed through the, dry, uh, the Red Sea on dry land. They circled the walls of Jericho. Oh, my gosh. Paul in his commentary in Corinthians says the one banner emblazoned over Israel was unbelief. And they make the hall of faith. Because in one shining, brilliant moment, they took a step and walked on dry land with waters congealed. You ever face great water? You ever get in boiling water through the things of life? And yet they took a step. And in one shining moment, they made it. We've all failed. We've all suffered. If you're trying to avoid failure, it can't happen. You're going to make mistakes. And when you make your mistakes, it's going to hurt. And you're going to fall off your throne, and you're not going to like it. But there's going to be a sense of brokenness where you understand God's not condemning you. He's building you up. He's teaching you. He's reviving you. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. My own brokenness came three years ago. 
right on the stage. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. I felt like a trap door opened on the stage, and I was dropped 100 feet in the darkness. Didn't know where I was. I didn't have one cognate thought in my mind. Somehow I made it through the service. My wife was here at the end. She said, get me a cup of coffee and a donut. I need to go to my office. Something's wrong. I went there, and I told her, I can't do this. Go get another pastor. When she walked out, I saw myself on the floor with paramedics, you know, administering to me. And I thought, I can either give in to this, or I can start walking. And I started walking, and 20 minutes later, there's a line behind me. I had walked and walked and walked. I was out of ministry for four months. It was like watching my own funeral. wondered if I would ever do this again. And I remember thinking, you know, insanity is to come back and do things the same way and not make changes. And I realized God was rebuilding me for a second year. I learned the value of colleagues that I had done ministry with here locally and around the country that ministered to me. The value of friendships that I had built. The value of family. The value of sonship. It's not what I do in God's sight. It's who I am. And had this never happened, I don't think I would have ever slowed down the kind of smell these roses. And brokenness. You know, it, it doesn't feel good at the time. But over a course of time, God reveals who he is. And there's a new humility. And there's a strength born out of humility. You look at it in Moses. Moses, who as an Egyptian, very strong, raised in the power of mighty Egyptians, he could kill people with his bare hands. Forty years earning a BDD, the backside of the desert degree. When God finally shows up, he said, God, I can't even speak. You know what he was saying? God, if this is up to me, if I got to give a TED talk before Pharaoh, I got nothing to say. But God, if you want to do something, then who knows who? And he didn't wield a force of power. He watched the power of God, and they passed through, verse 29, the Red Sea, as dry land. He stood down the supreme ruler of the day because they had faith in God's ability. The Lord said in Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory the word glory is trust in his riches but let him glory glory in this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord exercising loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these i delight says the lord the centurion knew this the Great men and women of Hebrews knew this. Rahab called a harlot. Can you believe that? She's called a harlot in Matthew, in James. Why? To shame her? No. To say this wasn't a woman, not even of faith, who exercised faith. God's not ashamed to be called our brethren. He's not ashamed of our weaknesses. Now, he doesn't leave us there. How many times did Jesus say, go and live a life free of sin? When I talk about this, I get a little bit angry, just a little bit, of how I entered the kingdom, 1986. Converted, brand new believer, taken to a church, wonderful, loving family church, but it was steeped in what was called the faith movement, if you've ever heard about that. The health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. They taught you should have faith in your faith, and if you did that, you could drive Rolls Royce cars, have big houses, everybody would always get healed, and you would be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if none of those things happened, it was because you didn't have faith. Now, I'm not bitter from that experience. I learned to trust God. Nor did I throw the baby out with the bathwater. I believe God does miracles. 
I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. They're all wonderful things. But I was young, in my 20s, and I was working for a woman who had cancer. This was my seminary. I watched her run from meeting to meeting, trying to muster up faith, and going to places where faith healers were, and I watched that woman be buried. And it's not a tragedy that she was buried. She went to be with the Lord. But I thought of how much the misuse of Scripture and, and the wrong view of God had permeated that situation. It forced me to love the Scriptures, to understand the character and nature of God. This is my third time in our church's history teaching Hebrews 11. And every time I teach it, I feel like God has brought me full circle to what faith really is and can be. And a lot of times it's born out of humiliation and humility. The fourth observation is this. There's a cost to faith. Look at verse 36. Others had trial of mocking, scourging, chains of imprisonment, stone. Anybody want to be stolen too? <laughs> See, in the faith movement, sign me up. I'll drive a Rolls Royce. I want to see God do great things, right? Uh, I don't think anybody wants to be Solomon too. They wandered in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute and afflicted, tormented. Here's the verse. The world wasn't worthy of these people. The world wasn't worthy of these people. The world was never worthy of a David Livingstone who gave his heart for Africa. He literally buried his heart there. The world wasn't worthy of John Huss and William Tyndale. Men who gave their lives to give us the word of God that's on our laps today. The world wasn't worthy of Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. All this who had a preferred picture for the way that life should be. Where did the preferred picture come from? Because God made man in his image, in his likeness. Man was to be cared for it and valued. And people looked at this and they heard the voice of God and they stepped into a grander vision. When you step into a grander vision, it takes courage because you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be laughed at, scorned, mocked, criticized. Sometimes you got to laugh at the world, right? you got to laugh at their script. A guy gets drafted in the NFL, the NBA. Somebody becomes a rock star, successful album. And it's almost like somebody hands them a script. Go out and buy bling. Go out and drive a fancy car. Get a big house. Make a fool of yourself, right? Here's your script. Don't you love it when a guy comes along and makes millions of dollars and says, you know, I like my little F-150 that I've been driving for the last five years, and I'm still going to drive it. Whenever the script is flipped, you get a tin teabow. The world is amazed by him because he's not running on the familiar script. I remember when we built this building. It was a daunting task. Very easy if you just come since we've been here. So we buy land, 24 acres. There was no road here. The road stopped at the movie theater. But we moved here on a promise. And we had a series of meetings across the street. We owned four acres. Uh, we cleared out the brush there. We put a tent up, and we had pictures of this building. And the reason we went there was to show people all that could be done if we ever got here. This is what God could do. But we also went there to show them this land. This was all weeds and brush. How daunting this task was. A visual, a visual picture. Some people understood. Some people mocked us. Whatever. But it took courage. Uh, Caleb 
Tatenbach was to be here at Sizzling Summer. He's a pastor in California, but he had a funeral to attend the day before he was to be here, so we had to cancel. We'll get him back next year. He's written a book called Messy Grace. When he was two years old, both of his parents came out of the closet, announced they were gay, and went and lived with same-sex partners. So he was raised by two women and attended gay rallies every weekend where the most hostility he saw or experienced came from Christians. Lo and behold, he becomes a Christian. In his teen years, he went to Bible studies to disprove Christianity, became a Christian, and today he's a pastor. And in the book, he goes through just a series of steps where both parents disowned him, thought he was out of his mind, thought he had turned his back on the LBGQ community. And, and you read stories like that and you think, life is messy, life is hard. How many of us, when we said we accepted Christ, people thought we were insane, we were nuts. You know, th that place is a cult where you're going and, and, and all these different things and kids When we start, we don't know where we're going. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, one day, he said, right now you do it, you go where you want, you do what you want. One day, people are going to take you where you don't want to go. And, and John writes, he's talking about his death. Peter was crucified upside down. And what was the first thing Peter said? What about him? What about John? <laughs> Lord, I'll sign up, but what about everybody else? Is everybody else going to go through all this? When the day came, Peter went willingly. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. Faith was strong. So those are my observations. And I'm going to give you my major point. Here's the takeaway. No Bible teacher worth his salt would end when Hebrews 11 ends. Because except for a couple hundred years, there were no chapter breaks. Here's the payoff, guys. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... Therefore, this is why the whole previous thought was written. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. Here's how we do it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Reading the exploits and triumphs of faith is wonderful. You know why? Because they all ran with limited light. They didn't have the light of the resurrection, the fullness of the Spirit. They didn't have Bibles in their hands. All the things you and I have. So they're all in the stands cheering us on. That's wonderful. But that's not the point. The point is, we are looking unto Jesus. So, if you, if you ever saw Greyhound racing in Florida, they put that little rabbit in front of them. See, we're running a race. We're not running a race to win. We're not trying to beat each other out. We're running the race God has for us. But our eyes have to be on Jesus. Why? He's the author and finisher of our faith. If you're a skeptic this morning, there's a lot of authors of faith. Muhammad was an author. Buddha's an author. Krishna's an author. There's a lot of authors. Joseph Smith, an author of faith. An author will tell you how to live. I only know one closer, one finisher, and that was Jesus. One sinless man who on a cross said, it is finished. Amen.
no longer what you do, it's already been done. And all you got to do is bow the knee to his lordship, and you are whole. He's the author, and he's the finisher. And that's where your gaze has to be. As wonderful as churches and community, human beings will let you down. They will. How do I know? I let people down all the time. People let me down. You got to get over it and get over it quick. You know, imagine being one of eight on the ark. You know, this man found grace in the eyes of God, and then you know, a couple days later, he's loaded. I mean, some of you that would wreck your faith. Moses getting angry and striking the rock probably would wreck your faith. But an unwreckable faith is a faith where we're gazing our eyes on Jesus. Here's another reason why you got to fix your eyes on him. The imagination was a wonderful gift God gave mankind. But there was a prohibition in Scripture that we would make no, nothing in God's image. In, and today we live in a world of images, a world of icons, right? And there's a screen in our mind. We play things out. We have these images. Um, Dr. Brene Brown. I don't know if she's a believer or not. I know this. Christian colleges use her book, Daring Greatly, in their courses on counseling. And she has this one section in her book, I thought I was the only one that ever did this, called Rehearsed Tragedy. Don't raise your hand if you've ever done this. Uh, a rehearsed tragedy would be where her husband would say, hey, and they lived in Texas, I'm going to take the kids to Pennsylvania this weekend because you're doing a teaching series. And she would come up with a thousand excuses. Now they have soccer, they have this and that. And the whole reason she didn't want them to go is she thought they'd all die in a plane crash. And in her mind, when they would go, she would picture herself at their funeral. It's called a rehearsed tragedy. In other words, it's the imagination's way of saying, let, this go th let me go through this in my mind so if it ever really happens, I'm prepared for it. We can do crazy things with our imagination. That's why the Bible says we need to take every cap thought captive. We need to wash our minds with Scripture. Uh, I remember Tim Keller saying one time that a lot of us have Jesus on audio, but our problems are on video. You know, through the ear, we're hearing about Jesus and talking about him, but we got these scenarios playing out in video in the world of our imagination. We need to fix our eyes, our gaze on Jesus. Because he will never let us down. And when we go through dark days, he'll be the one that sustains us. And this is why drawing close to him is so important. Dallas Willard, who has written a lot about spiritual disciplines, he said, I hope your life is filled with whoopee moments. That's whoopee, right? That's kind of like when they came through the Red Sea. They got the tambourines out and said, whoopee. Uh, he said, I hope your life's filled with that. I hope there are aha moments. There should be. We should all have them. He said, but they'll never transform us. Everybody understand that? If they would transform us, why did all those people die in the wilderness? They saw more miracles than anyone that ever lived. He said, what transforms us is the will to obey Jesus Christ from the life that is one with his resurrected reality. Get this. Every single Abraham, exploits of faith. You know what it said of him? He's a friend of God. Enoch, walked with God. Moses, the only man ever to see God face to face. There's a song we used to sing. It said, fix your eyes upon Jesus. 
and gaze into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want to end this series by saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that brought you into this. We sang this morning that all things are working for your good, and he's the one who will sustain you.